0: we need to become participants in a larger being the larger being of the earth and understand our role as being one of contribution to the dream of this, uh, the dream of this planet like what is our role to play what th- these amazing gifts we have the human species we have incredible gifts what are they for are they for just us or are they f- to contribute to something that includes the totality of life
1: Welcome to the show. I am your host, Matthias Olsen. Ordinarily, I work as a filmmaker, now also pod maker, if that's a word. On today's episode, I'll be talking to Charles Eisenstein, a writer and philosopher whose work has meant a lot to me. It was after reading his book, The Ascent of Humanity, that I sort of left the ordinary documentary filmmaking industry and started out in a new direction. In the book, Charles seeks to answer the question, how did we get here, to what basically is the tipping point between an alive earth and a dead one. In attempting to answer that question, he goes all the way to the roots of our existence, as he dissects the story that underwrites that which we call normal, the myth of our time, if you will. I was quite taken with that book, and was very happy when I found out that Charles was coming to visit the community where I live, To give a talk at something called the Youth Initiative Program. I went to listen to him speak there and was able to set up an interview with him for the day after. But before we get to that interview, here's a few words from our sponsor, the film platform Campfire Stories. Campfire Stories is a platform for films, mainly documentaries, examining different paths and ideas towards a world in social and ecological balance. You'll find it at campfire-stories.org The idea for that platform and for dedicating my filmmaking to serve a more beautiful future came after I had read Charles' book that I mentioned before. So you can see how close to my heart the interview you're about to hear is. So go check out Campfire Stories, press pause, get out a pen and jot down campfire-stories.org. See you there after the show. And now, back to my interview with Charles Eisenstein. Human beings as we, as we know them biologically... Um, have been around for about two or three hundred thousand years roughly uh, to our knowledge, and have been through different chapters of what's considered normal, what's considered um, uh, the normal story of where did we come from and where we're we going. Uh, how would you describe the chapter we're currently in and how would you describe the chapter as you see it that we're entering into
0: yeah. So one way I look at um, human civilization is through the basic stories and myths that, that operate the civilization, that tell us who we are and why we're here and, and what's real. Um, and, and so we are today at the end of a certain story that has carried us for a long time. I call it the story of separation that holds us, um, says who we are as separate individuals in an objective world that is outside of ourselves that does not have the qualities of a self. That's just a bunch of stuff out there that we are forever struggling against the forces of nature which are random and the other beings of nature which are, which are fundamentally our competitors. The bacteria, for example, the weeds, that human betterment comes through exercising greater and greater control over this purposeless, random, or hostile world outside of ourselves. So, so that in that story, the conquest of nature is perfectly rational. The development of all things, the bringing of order onto the wild, all of that is perfectly rational. It's also rational to seek to dominate each other because if you're a separate individual, what happens to you doesn't necessarily need to affect me. I can exploit you and I'll be better off and you'll be worse off. That that is no longer rational in the story that I think that we are transitioning into, which you might call the story of interbeing, which is more than interdependency or interconnection, although it includes those things too. But in that story, we know that what happens to you or what happens to the wolves or what happens to the fish or what happens to the, to the trees impacts us too, it's happening to us too. Maybe it, if we pollute the world we get cancer or maybe if we bomb people in Yemen we have domestic violence at home somehow uh, or maybe the, the influence is more subtle. Maybe if we impoverish the world of nature we feel bleak we feel impoverished also, we feel depressed, we feel a lack of meaning. So, so the, it could be that the uh, physical health of the world of life mirrors our own mental health and that you really can't fix one without the other because it's about repairing the relationships that make us into complete beings. So yeah, I think that we are in, uh, in the midst of a transition, into a new and also very ancient mythology that holds us in a different way, that says who we are? Answers the question, who are we in a different way?
1: Um, so we're living in a, in a world of good versus evil that's sort of built into um, the structure of life. and. I, for one, fall into that trap all the time, I tend to blame things on uh, huge multinational corporations and it's their greed that's at fault for things, Um, as one example. What's your take on good versus evil?
0: Yeah, I think usually the uh, diagnosis of the cause of a problem as evil That's a way to avoid actually understanding what's causing the problem. So if we blame corporate greed for the problems of this world, I mean, it looks like that. But we're not asking then, where does greed come from? And why are corporations so good at it? Corporations are the most effective way to be ruthless because most individual people just can't be that ruthless. Most individual people aren't going to uh, walk up to an impoverished person and say, okay, ma'am, you're gonna have to leave your child and work in a sweatshop so that I can have a shirt. But when we participate in large structures, we we do that exact thing, but it's very diffuse. So, So corporations are kind of systemically necessary. And the greed So, okay, so let's ask, where does greed come from? I think that greed is a response to scarcity. And a lot of the scarcity in our civilization is artificially created through the money system. And we can see that, like everything money touches becomes um, overabundant for a few and scarce for many, when originally it was abundant for everybody. So, And money is the same way. Some people have way more money than they know to do with and others are struggling just to pay the rent and Millions of people are homeless in So in America for example millions of people are homeless and there are also millions of empty homes at the same time and Millions of homes with many empty rooms. So there's no actual scarcity. It's artificial in conditions of artificial scarcity people get greedy because You see around you all of the, the lack, and how am I going to be safe? If you're in conditions of abundance, you don't have to be greedy. If everybody has enough, then you don't need to like keep more for yourself. That's stupid. If you're in, an orch- imagine like we're in this orchard full of apple trees, and there's piles of apples all over the place, more than anybody can eat. And here's like this weird guy sitting here. These are my apples. No one can have any. And people are like, so what? There's plenty of apples. Like that, that, person, is, that person basically won't exist. Like, there's no reason to be greedy. So greed is a response to the conditions that we're put into. It's a desire for a kind of security that we miss because really the security is supposed to come from connections, from a sense of belonging to place, from a sense of belonging to community. And all of that belonging has been shattered by modern civilization. We don't have that anymore. We don't have that fundamental security and fundamental sense of being here and belonging here. So as a substitute for that, we want to acquire power, control, and that's what money really is. It's power and control over, over the material world. Like that's a substitute for what's missing. So to go to war against the symptom, so greed is a symptom, right? To go to war against the symptom is an endless battle. To go to war against the um, practitioners of that symptom, the corporations, while leaving untouched the ground from which they spring, that is also an endless war. And you could punish all of the worst corporate offenders and a new batch of corporate offenders will come up if you don't change the underlying conditions. And that's why I you know, spent a lot of, quite a few years researching the money system, the economy, and, and what a money system that didn't create artificial scarcity would look like. Uh, and that's maybe a different conversation, but, but that's the kind of question that we have to ask when we are in judgment over somebody and seeing them as evil, we have to ask, what are the conditions from which, that, from which that behavior arises? What are the conditions of the greed? Or what are the conditions of the lying? What are the conditions of the hypocrisy, of the narcissism? Like all of these judgments we hold. And then just write somebody off as evil. That's, I mean, it's kind of convenient because it allows us to exercise the solution that we're familiar with which is fighting, destroy something, win. The movies all tell us that's how to solve a problem. And it doesn't solve the problem. It's a trick. If there really were evil in the world, like evil forces controlling the world, and they wanted to control us, the best way they could do that would be to convince us that the problem is evil forces in the world. It's a paradox. Because then we're always fighting something and never seeing what's causing the problem to begin with.
1: Now you just basically said that there are evil forces that are controlling the world. Or did I misunderstand? I said if there were. The best way to do it would be to do what is happening.
0: Yeah, if if, like say I wanted to perpetuate the status quo and prevent people from ever changing things then I would create conditions where they're blaming each other. Mm. Where they're blaming bad people for doing it. Where the people um, in the corporations are blaming those ignorant hippies and the ignorant hippies are blaming the greedy people in the corporations and the scientists at Monsanto are blaming the ignorant anti-science deplorables and the, the Trump supporters or, the, <coughs> or let's say the environmentalists are blaming the, the greedy, corrupt uh, Monsanto scientists, and everybody <clears throat> is blaming the, the um, <clears throat> excuse me, everyone's blaming the moral deficiency of somebody. Like that, and they're all fighting each other. Like that's gonna perpetuate the status quo because it, the, the spectacle and froth of that fight distracts attention from these deeper questions of where the greed, where the hypocrisy, where the lying, where, where does that come from? What has to happen for you to become a person who does that? Or have you never done anything like that? Probably if you're like me, you have. And, and so then a response, instead of punishing, would be curiosity. Like, why did I do that? But not as in, why did you do that? But why did you do that? Then what happens is we don't know what to do. Like when we see the deep systemic origins of what we call evil, and we see that fighting isn't gonna solve the problem, we face a dilemma. We face unknowing. We don't know what to do. That's really uncomfortable. But it is actually a step forward. Not knowing what to do and knowing that you don't know what to do is much better than thinking you know what to do but actually, perpetuating the problem.
1: Nice, thank you. Whenever I think of um, climate change and the environment, uh, environmental destruction that's happening, um, I always uh, the amount of people on this planet always comes up for me. Um, I don't know the numbers now, but I, I think somebody said that it's the, the doubling of the population. Happens twice as fast for every time it doubles. I don't know if that's still the case, but that was the case at least. Um, so it just, I just feel like there's just too many of us, and we're becoming more and more and more of us. Um, how do you see the the Earth's population in correlation with um, climate change and, and getting uh-huh. out of it? Yeah.
0: yeah. So I think that that yeah, I mean often people will come to me and say Charles You're ignoring the elephant in the room. It's population and if we don't cut the population, then nothing else is going to work And I think that that is another escape into kind of a false solution That allows us to practice the things that we are already good at uh, Something to control a number to control That we can do with centralized policies uh, and and um, controlling people's behavior. So I looked into this and what I found, um, a few things. One is that if everybody lived the lifestyle of the average El Salvadoran, then eight billion people is sustainable. If everybody lived the lifestyle of a traditional villager in India, 16 or 20 billion is sustainable. If everybody lived the lifestyle of an average North American, then even two billion is not sustainable. So the the question of population can be a mask uh, for other issues that we need to look at, how we want to live. And to say that we... So some arguments say, well, look, industrialization is a fact. Um, Mega cities, you know industrial, uh, economic growth, more and more people having cars, therefore population levels are unsustainable and we need to reduce the population. That takes for granted a certain model of development. And I think that's what we need to question. We need to question, is urbanization an inevitable trend? Why is urbanization happening? Why are people wanting to, to leave the land in such great numbers? Is that because human progress and human betterment is a natural progression from the soil to the machine to the the world of data? Like, is that our destiny, to become more and more disconnected? Or is that simply the model that we've developed in the West and the story that we've had about ourselves? Are there maybe other models of development that actually meet real human needs more effectively? I think there are. For me, a more joyful, happy life isn't in a bigger house, driving a faster car, having more bandwidth. In fact, I'm moving in the opposite direction. You know, I spend the summer at my brother's farm uh, with my feet and hands touching the soil, doing labor. And a lot of people want to simplify their lives because they've recognized that even the peak of quantitative development isn't really what they wanted. It's another substitute for something else that's missing. So to, go, to return to population, we need to begin asking different questions. And also I will say that population growth is leveling off uh, quickly. And probably we will peak at maybe 10 billion, 11 billion. And, and then the population will slowly begin to decline. Many many countries almost every Developed country has a birth rate of less than the replacement rate In in many countries much much less, you know, you need about 2.1 children per woman um, to maintain a steady population and In many countries like Germany, I think it's maybe 1.5 or something um, Japan is 1.4 1.3. I mean, there's a lot of countries that have even China is less than two um, India is quickly going that direction More and more countries are, are have rapidly falling birth rates so it takes a long time for that to result in lower population because at the same time life expectancy in many of those countries is rising but the, the rise in life expectancy is f- flattened out too in the developed countries and in 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 the United States, it's actually showing signs of declining now. Life expectancy. So, I don't think that population really is the elephant in the room. It's it's a kind of a, it's a red herring, a distraction.
1: Still, it's nice to hear. But that. yeah, it's so,
0: but you know what? Like, so then we can ask different questions. Not like what's a sustainable population, but what's the ideal population? Like, I think I would prefer a world with maybe only two billion people, because I like to be out in nature and like you know not be stumbling over a whole bunch of other people who want to go to the same waterfall like i think that there are other reasons why we might want a lower population and that over a long time i think becomes a general conversation and culture in uh, um, a collective culture of humanity so that's that's a different a different conversation right. yeah
1: Uh, I have a really hard time um, with certain aspects of everyday life uh, because they clash with my ideals. Uh, so one example is when um, one of our children have a birthday party, and their friends bring gifts, which is wonderful. But all I can see as they open the gifts is just plastic and electronics, and stuff that I'm going to have to take to the garbage dump in a couple of weeks when it doesn't work anymore. But th- so it's a conflict because I don't really want to tell my kid, like, I don't want to call the parents of the other children and say, please buy books or wooden thing. Like, it's just a conflict. Do you have similar things where in your everyday life, your um, ideals don't match up with, with life?
0: Yes. Yes. Next question. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I mean the same thing. Um, uh, That's one reason why we moved to a location where there's many, many parents who share our values and they totally understand when we say don't bring gifts. And they totally understand if our son goes to play, don't watch videos. Like they don't, they they have the same values. If you're in a situation where the people around you don't share your values, then you always have to fight to maintain your your own values, um, especially when you have children. And then you have conflicting values. Like, there's the value of of not burdening your life with too much stuff. And then there's also the value of maintaining harmonious relationships with the people around you. And, like, they might feel insulted, especially if it comes to the older generation. Like, I have this problem with, with my mother. Like, the way that she was conditioned to express love was through gifts of Material things. That was the cult of consumerism that was in its heyday when she was growing up. Like, that's how you did it, you know? So it's hard to ask her to stop doing that because it lands on her as if I'm asking her to stop loving. And, and yeah, so, so these... So material culture is... In a, um, an expression of the spiritual culture. And to ask people to violate that is really, in, it's, it's an invitation to um, a, a, a rupture with their their story of who they are. Like it goes all the way to, to, to it disrupts their understanding of the world and, and what's right and what's normal. It's, it's a big challenge. Um, and like, I'm not gonna say, yeah, stand up for your values necessarily. Like sometimes, um, but to be aware of what you're communicating and to just sometimes be aware that there's conflicting values at work here. And sometimes it's better to just eat that birthday cake, you know, because it's just, as, this, as the saying goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. There's a kind of a respect if you go to somebody else's culture. You don't just say, well, oh, I'm going to do things my way. But you listen, you observe, um, you, you learn a bit about the, the, just like you learn a language. Etiquette is another language. And the way that we handle material culture, that's another language. So I don't think there's an easy answer to that.
1: But in your everyday life, like, are there other examples where you're like, I don't know what they might be, but, but things that you come across often that's like, oh, I wish I didn't have to do this, but I have to, or I feel like I have to, any other?
0: Well, like for example, um, I do a lot of speaking and often they ask me to sign a contract. So really, I mean, when you're signing a legal contract, you're basically saying, we agree that if we disagree, we will call upon the state, which will uh, enforce our agreement through threat of violence. Like it's, we're, we're we're basically putting our trust in the violence of the state to settle disputes. I don't want to do that, and realistically, like it's you know probably we're not going to sue each other. But it's like it's like a it's a ritualistic statement um, that. So like I try to avoid signing contracts. I don't like the I don't like the the reality that I'm affirming through that ritual. Rituals draw their power from the story that contains them, but they also give power to that story. Every time that you sign a contract or even like use money or go to a, a medical institution for treatment, you're reaffirming the reality and the power of these institutions so okay but then again like i have work to do in the world and the person asking me to sign the contract they have fear they have or a organizational policy and so i don't absolutely insist on never signing a contract But I often, uh, so I'll I'll sense into the situation and maybe I'll just bring it up, you know? Uh, Maybe I'll ask, hey, do you really need me to sign this? Or I'll at least illuminate what's going on here. Depends on the situation.
1: I've, uh, I'm having a hard time watching the news uh, whenever I watch the news um, or listen to the radio, um, I feel depressed and I feel like there 's nothing I can do anyway it doesn 't matter what I do, whatever I try to do it doesn 't have any effect um, so i 've stopped watching the news well it still seeps through of course um, but i 'm trying to not watch the news so much, but then I feel bad about that I feel like i 'm like i don 't care or something but i I do but it 's a strange um, uh, I'm having a hard time with news basically. What's your relation to news?
0: Sometimes I go on a news fast, and I don't watch any news at all for months at a time. Uh, Almost a year I went without watching the news. And when I do get back into the news, there's an addictive quality to it. Uh, I notice myself if I'm working on something and I, you know, hit a little uh, rough patch, I'll just go snap to the news. So that feels like, an, like it has an addictive power. So I don't trust it. And I don't trust the reasons that I give myself why I'm doing it, why I think I should be informed. It, for me, reading the news, it, it's a certain kind of mental food or a psychic food or a drug that is part of a way of being, a state of being. Different kinds of news are part of a different state of being. Mainstream media, Brings me into I mean, actually, I'm very my system is very repellent of mainstream media Like I really can't even take it in without feeling sick Uh, but there are but if I go to like um, Like left-wing media or right-wing media even it brings me into a certain state of being And I guess I'm looking for media that nourishes the state of being in which I feel the most true to myself and the most productive. So to take that in, rather than what I should be reading, how I can be informed, or even what's true, but rather what nourishes me, what makes me feel good, what makes me be effective in the world. That's my ideal. Um, And I can't say that I live up to that completely but sometimes I get uh, a taste of that, and then it's no longer addictive, but it makes me, it's empowering. A lot of, and this is related, I guess, I think a lot of people go to the news to reassure themselves that the world is as they think it is, to reassure themselves that they're right, to reassure themselves that they're doing an okay thing with their lives in the world. And in that sense, it is a kind of of nourishment as well. Is it a nourishment of the state that they really want to be in? Maybe not. But it is so much more, on a psychological level, it's so much more, excuse me, it's so much more than just gathering facts about the world. It's it's a way to uh, architect or to engineer the conditions in which your state of being and your worldview can exist. And I'll just say, like a lot of the, um, yeah, like you talked about, like feeling despair, like like depressed or helpless, uh, watching the news. Yeah, I mean, because there are these you know big events going on, and the meta message is that you can't do anything about it. And, and even if you're offered something to do about it, it's very uh, trivial, like like you vote for somebody or you maybe sign an electronic petition, or even if you go out into the street and protest, like you're just one person out of, out of millions of people. And the protests don't seem to change anything anyway. Um, so the meta message is for most media is that things are terrible, and there's nothing you can do because the worldview or the theory of change or the story underneath all of this is that, again, you're just a separate individual. So when you accept that, nothing you do really matters. Therefore, the uh, macro view of faraway, distant, important events happening, that contributes to that feeling of powerlessness the, the message is, yeah, this is happening, you know, Russia did this, whatever, uh, Israel did that, and you're just sitting here you're just one person and and you're just your only act is to be informed, but what are you actually doing to change it? anything that you can do I mean f- with a few exceptions, like me, like I could theoretically write an article about something and I you know even. Like, I'm not actually, like, that huge a public figure, you know, maybe a few tens of thousands of people will read it, and probably nothing will change then either. But but for most people who don't even have that, like, what you can actually do, rationally speaking, can have no possible impact on any of these big events. So, yeah, that's why I think it's really important to embrace a different understanding of how change happens in this universe. That doesn't depend on the force that you can exert on the world that validates the small actions that operate on reality in mysterious ways that defy conventional causal thinking. And That's a whole other topic that I maybe won't go into right now, but you could ask more about it or we
1: can move on. Yeah, we, uh, you spoke about that yesterday and yeah. I filmed that, so I can okay. cut to that. I'm going to step out here for a moment. The background story here is that the day prior to this interview, Charles had given his presentation at the Youth Initiative Program, and he had spoken there of uh, another way of envisioning uh, a theory of change in the world. And that's what I was referring to when I said I filmed that yesterday. Um, And I'm going to actually cut now to that what I was referring to. So we're gonna step into uh, Charles's presentation at the Youth, the youth Initiative Program uh, just for a little bit so that we can um, hear more of what he means when he talks about um, the fact that change doesn't necessarily happen the way we think it does through uh, through force, through whatever force we can uh, muster to make things change. Um, he's giving, he'll, he'll give a, a beautiful example here. So let's listen in.
0: Who, who do you think, for just take an example here, who would you say was the most influential, important person in the history of South Africa? Most people would say Nelson Mandela. And I understand that. But what if you ask, well, how was it that he stayed peaceful? throughout all those years in prison and didn't come out of that wanting blood revenge for what happened to him and his people? What gave him that resource? I don't know the answer to that, but I imagine it could have been his grandmother. Maybe it was his grandmother who gave him so much love and so much wisdom when he was a child that he was able to hold that through decades in prison. We don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe some people know more about him than I do, but, but it could be that. So then, who is the most influential person in the history of South Africa? It was Nelson Mandela's grandmother. And, and what that means, and that's an example of the mysterious pathways that every action ripples out into the world. Every action. In the story of separation, no. Some actions are totally wasted. What if you're... What if you're heart calls you to care for dying people in, in hospices or um, homeless people or handicapped people. And you cannot say how this is gonna change climate change or, or any of the big social issues in the world. And your heart says, but this is important. And your mind says, how could it be important? But when we understand that we're not separate from all then we understand that a change in one place is a change in every place. That anything that happens here happens everywhere because we're all connected.
1: All right, stepping out of the presentation at the Youth Initiative Program and back into the interview. I've sort of identified four important pillars for my life that are, that, Yeah, that are important for me to live well. Three of them I know, I have a pretty good idea of how to do, how to put into um, action. Uh, The fourth one, I have no clue. So I want to ask you about the fourth one. Um, So the the pillars are um, contemplation, action, um, grief, and celebration. And um, so grief, I guess, It relates to watching the news or getting information that tears me up inside or makes me feel um, sad or upset or angry. Um, But I I don't know how to deal with it in a constructive way. What's your relationship to grief in that sense?
0: There's a lot of good reasons for grief um, in a human life the things that we lose, the things that we um, never get to experience, the choices we make that that cut us off from a whole other set of choices that we could have made, um, the grief from our ancestors, the, the the terrible things that are happening in the world. Like, usually we have Um, some kind of boundary that keeps us from feeling all of that all the time. But it's still in the field and it's still part of us and sometimes it's necessary to go there uh, and to have, not all the time, but to have some moments where we're really feeling the pain of all things or holding that pain for a while. Um, And I think that our culture doesn't really offer Opportunities for grief, especially grief that's publicly recognized, that's that's shared with other human beings, that's a lot more powerful and a lot more cathartic than just crying on your pillow. So, so yeah, um, there's I think there's like a really big unmet need to express grief, and sometimes so and 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 like so there's no socially appropriate. Occasions even funerals in a lot of countries you're supposed to like be very reserved, you know And you're not supposed to be wailing crying and people holding you and like and like that's not how it happens in most Western countries so There's this need this this soul need to go into the space of grief and Then so sometimes we might even like unconsciously will be seeking out things that make us feel that or something will just invade our life and pierce through the barrier, and it, it will unleash. Like, like one time, our cat, you know, like we had to, um, the cat didn't even die, but my wife at the time got allergic to it, and we had to give it away, you know, and like I was just like bawling, and it really wasn't about the cat. It was about all the other things that had been suppressed that I had never cried for, my lost youth, you know, my moving away from home when I was seventeen, you know, my like all these things that I would just and and so then because of like some silly cat she wasn't even a very good cat, you know, but then like that opens up the the floodgates. So yeah, I think that that there's a need um, to. To, to encounter these things that pierce the, the cultural barriers to, to really feeling grief. Um, it's all, sometimes I even think that really outrageous events are generated by the collective psychic need for those events. In the United States, it's school shootings. You know, Some guy goes in and shoots a bunch of six-year-olds. Like, and there's just no way you can fit that into a story that all is well in the world. Like, it's just so confronting. Like, there's, the defenses do not stand up against something like that. Um, so, yeah. It's actually, you mentioned another pillar of celebration. Um, grief is, for, for the need for, for, to grieve to be fully met, it has to be done in community. It has to be done to a witnessing. And the same is true of joy. And that's what celebration is. Just being happy and celebrating in your kitchen with a bottle of champagne all by yourself, that's not celebration. We have a need to be witnessed in our joy just as we have a need to be witnessed in our grief. It's supposed to be public. Otherwise, it's never fully real because we're not separate individuals. and, And the grief and the joy both, they have not just a psychological purpose, but they have a social purpose as well. And if they don't meet their social purpose, they will be stunted, in the individual, as well as in the society.
1: Thank you. All right. In um, the ascent of humanity, you wrote about uh, technology, um, and I'm I don't, I'm going to paraphrase, but something uh, about. The fact that we're blinded by the promise of technology and that it hasn't delivered. Um, at the same time, I, I, I so I agree with that. But at the same time, I get really excited when I hear about like um, a, a boat that's built specifically to to clean up plastic from the ocean or some other uh, technological advance that will help uh, clean up our mess. Yeah. What's your take on that? Or like what? How do you think that technology actually will? help uh, get us out of this mess? Or do you think it will help? I mean, what
0: is technology? You know, technology is, you could say, on one level, it's just the way that we interact with the material world. Every culture uses technology. So it's a question of what's the purpose to which that technology is dedicated. What are we using the technology for? I think that in our current Society, we use technology for a lot of things that maybe we shouldn't use technology for. We use it to substitute for other things that we need. But that doesn't mean that there isn't good and right uses for technology. And when technology is devoted to healing the planet, then, and and our creativity is unleashed in that direction, then we can achieve miracles. I mean, already, like, look at how much of our of our scientific and technological brilliance is devoted toward weapons. Trillions of dollars every year globally. Just imagine if we just took just that and devoted it toward cleaning up the plastics. We could probably do it with a fraction of that. Like none of these problems, if we, so, so the problem really, maybe the conversation isn't even, about, shouldn't be about technology, but it should be about what are the values and incentives and structures that direct the application of technology. And then, you know, when those change, then certain realms of technology might become much less important and others might become much more important. And I think that overall, the the realm of high technology might shrink. We might start doing things, we might start replacing technological ways of doing things with simpler ways of doing things, like uh, growing food, for example. Like there's a lot of high-tech food right now, like robot run, like automated hydroponics farms. I think there are a lot of those in the Netherlands. And we might go back to more people planting gardens. So that might be a retreat of technology.
1: I have friends who are super excited about artificial intelligence and the, I think it's called the technological singularity. Singularity. Right. Uh, I get super scared when I read about it or hear about it. I just feel like it's the wrong path um, intuitively. What's your relation to artificial intelligence and synchronicity? Singularity. 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 (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, this is a little complicated. Um, so we, we are right now in a phase of rapid development of artificial intelligence after many decades of stagnation where the, the initial enthusiasm about it failed to materialize for a very long time. Now there are significant breakthroughs in machine learning. So there's like a new wave of enthusiasm that yeah, maybe we are going to have machines that are as intelligent or more intelligent than human beings. I mean, already they're way better at playing chess and and other games. So the danger here is that, so I do think that that, uh, artificial intelligence has a proper domain of application. It's very good at solving Quantifiable problems, problems where you can convert the situation into numbers, and where the solution is also reducible to numbers. And as we become able to convert more and more situations into numbers, the uh, more, and more like face recognition, for example, like like the, the you know if we can reduce face, faces to a data set, and then Assign a problem to the AI; it can perform face recognition. It's getting much, much better at that. The, so, one of the so there's a lot of obvious dangers that that people write about. On on a more subtle level, the danger is that we begin to believe that every problem can be reduced to data, and that the best way to make a decision is through quantitative methods, that the solution can be also framed in quantitative terms. Once we accept that, then why not let AI solve every problem? But what I've been noticing is that in our society, even as we achieve more and more of the things that we can quantify, we are... Losing the things that are qualitative things that that cannot be converted into data This is a danger especially in the um, environmental movement Where the things that don't either that we don't measure or can't measure those get secondary status in a data centric carbon centric model of how the how the planet works and environmentalism or green becomes a matter of low carbon or something that you can quantify and therefore you can offset it and therefore you can monetize it and have incentive policies but but what next but but the things that we don't measure might actually be more important just like the things that we don't measure in GDP might actually be more important to human happiness so we could have an ai that runs the whole economy to maximize GDP. But, and it might work. Even at the same time, we might have um, rising levels of depression. And can you quantify that? Well, maybe you could try to quantify it and have everybody fill out a questionnaire. And so then the AI tries to create systems where people are less depressed. But what it's actually doing is creating systems where the answers to the questionnaire are, are different. And is that really going to capture psychological well-being? Or could you have a situation where, like, like if I were the AI, one solution would be to set up um, some kind of system where people feel compelled to write the correct answers. From the AI's point of view, problem solved. And in fact, we get a little bit of that because we're so conditioned to providing the right answer. Like we already have a system in place to do that, it's called school. So the danger, like just to repeat, the danger is that it draws us even more into the belief that the, the way to live life, the way to engineer a good society is through better management of data. And that is dangerous because it focuses all of our attention on the things that we can quantify. and causes us to neglect even further the qualitative dimensions to life. Like, can you quantify beauty? Can you quantify intimacy? Can you quantify authenticity? Can you quantify joy? Can you quantify um, spiritual enlightenment? If you cannot quantify these things and you run the world by, with an AI, you're gonna get less and less of these things. We already are seeing this, already seeing less and less of these things, not because the world is run by an AI, but it is run on on a quantitative basis. Like Everybody wants to bring science into their decision making, um, but really the mother of all quantitative systems for running the world is money, which reduces a million things to just one thing, a million values to one thing called value. It, it yeah converts the world into a quantity. So AI essentially is just like another way to do that. So the important thing with AI then is to recognize its limitations and to, to prevent the quantitative tools from usurping the rulership of qualitative values, of human values. They they must never become the master. They should only be a tool that is governed by our our spiritual values and put to to work for those values. And, and, And yeah, we just have to really remember that anytime we quantify anything, something is left out. Even... What's left out could be things that that we could quantify, but we decide not to, because those aren't important, we think. Or they could be things that are too hard to quantify, or they could be things that are fundamentally unquantifiable. Otherwise, we're gonna have a world that has more and more of everything we can measure, while the interior, the meaning, all drains away and we have cold, hard shell of a world.
1: Thank you. Beautiful. So you have a new book coming out soon, Um, and from my understanding, it's a little bit different. The message, it's on climate and um, the environment, but from my understanding, it's a bit different from let's say, an inconvenient truth or the mainstream reporting on those topics. Can you just... Uh, describe what your book is about?
0: Yeah, the book is called Climate, A New Story. Uh, And I almost didn't want to call it climate anything because a lot of people when they see climate, they're like, I'm not going to read that. Not because they don't care, but because they think that they know what it's going to say. And more importantly, they think they know how they're going to feel when they read it, which is helpless and depressed. So. I decided in the end, like it is about climate. So I decided I would have to say climate, but I put a new story because it is offering a way of seeing the crisis that's very different from the mainstream view. Today, pretty much you have two alternatives. Either you can believe that global warming is going to cause massive problems, possibly even human extinction, or you can believe that the whole thing Is fake, it's a hoax, it's not real, it's not happening. And I'm offering uh, something that's kind of, you could even say, outside that entire spectrum, which is a little risky for me. Um, I feel kind of vulnerable doing it because in a situation of polarized opinion, everybody's looking at the issue through the lens of which side are you on. So if you don't fit their side they think you must be on the other side and and the idea that that both sides share hidden assumptions that are actually at the root of the problem that is just not you know on the menu of possible opinions so that's but that's where I'm coming from I'm offering yeah it's a, it's a it's a it's a new story so i do think that there is a serious ecological crisis, part of it is a climate crisis, which means changes in the persistent patterns of precipitation and temperature around the world. I think that one of the main points of the book is that it's a mistake to put all of the emphasis on greenhouse gases and that we need to put more emphasis on the role of ecosystems, really the role of life in maintaining a healthy biosphere. The idea is that life itself creates the conditions for life, that the forests and the wetlands and the fish and the insects and the soil, these are all organs of a living being. That if we continue to degrade these organs, even if we cut emissions to zero, the climate is still going to get more and more deranged. And the result may not be human extinction. It may not be anything measurable for human beings. We might continue to have economic growth and plenty of square feet per capita and uh, higher and higher bandwidth and 5G and 6G like we might have all of that in a concrete dying world. And we need so part of the book also is saying we need to orient toward love and not self-interest. We need to become participants in a larger being, the larger being of the earth and and our and understand our role as being one of contribution to the dream of this, the dream of this planet. Like what is our role to play? What these amazing gifts we have, the human species, we have incredible gifts. What are they for? Are they for just us or are they f- to contribute to something that includes the totality of life? So that's, So I, I see the uh, climate crisis as an initiation into a new and ancient relationship between humans and the rest of life.
1: So in, how to call it, in the mainstream version of how things are, uh, there are things that a regular person can do to quote-unquote help save the planet. We can uh, switch to an electrical car or get rid of our car and take the bus. We can um, buy organic food, uh, switch to a vegetarian diet. We can recycle. There are these things that that are okay and we can do to help. But from your perspective, do you have anything else to offer that is easy for everyday people to do in everyday life to help change mm-hmm. the situation?
0: Yeah, so I think all of those things: recycling and using your bicycle and um, using less energy, like you could I think those things are helpful uh, even from My perspective that um, de-emphasizes greenhouse gas emissions, but I think that when we come from a planet care perspective, then the scope of our um, helpful actions widens. So one thing that becomes very important is to take care of land, to take care of soil and to take care of water, to, to plant trees and to take care of those trees, and to if you have some, some land, then to create habitats there for the birds and for the butterflies, um, to make sure that soil is never exposed to air, but always has, has something planted there, cover crops there, something growing there so that, that the water can be absorbed down into the ground and not just run off into the rivers. Uh, causing floods, and then it's gone. So it doesn't get to evaporate and make clouds and cause rain, so then it causes droughts too. Like, so to take care of the water. Like, these, this is the direction we need to go into a stance of mutual care for the Earth. Like, that's the mentality. And from that mentality, See, like there's a kind of a helplessness built into what you can do about climate change and the dominant narrative. Because no matter what you do, like, yeah, you can ride your bike, but what if somebody else buys a BMW? You know, you can recycle, but what if somebody else, say, in Asia is making mountains of trash? Um, it, it, it doesn't matter what you do as one little person, because when the problem is framed globally— and the climate narrative as it stands is, is framed globally. It's total atmospheric levels of greenhouse gases. So no matter what you do or don't do, somebody else can offset it, positively or negatively. But when we turn toward Earth care, then, and, and, and your focus is on some being that you love or some, and, also, and seeing land and seeing place as a being, and people too, like that's part of Earth care also then you don't need to frame it in global terms anymore. I think that save the planet is actually not the right motivation. The right motivation is find something you love and take care of it. Expand the scope of your love to include not just human beings, but to include places, to include species, to include even individual trees or a little forest that you love. And now they want to build a road there, protect that. Um, protect that river, protect that stream, protect that even small place. So it's the, it's the embrace of love and the expansion of love that motivates the, the actions that then, yeah, in the end they add up to global impact. But you don't have to have a global Causal framework to motivate it. All you have to do is love something. You don't have to believe in climate change All you have to do is believe that yeah I want to take care of this of this woods where I grew up I want to take care of this this bay where I used to go fishing as a kid and now the fish are gone Where I used to collect seashells and now I don't see any seashells anymore I was just on vacation with with my wife, you know and her family where she grew up And when she was a kid they would go on the beach and there'd be all these shells they would collect the shells. You can still see people's shell collections. And now the beach, is just sand. There's no shells anymore. Maybe old broken ones from years ago. But there's no, you can't find like big conch shells, you know, and they're, they're, they're gone. Like, so that's a more tangible kind of care that calls to us where we don't have to accept scientific consensus. As much, at least. So, yes. So um, a love-based, care-based narrative I think is empowering on a personal level. It's empowering in the sense of, now I know what to do. And I feel free to do it. I feel free just to, to make this amazing garden that regenerates the soil. I don't have to have a set of reasons about how much carbon is it sequestering, even though that's happening. I don't need that as my motivation. Because if that's my motivation, and I find out that other people aren't doing it, and that I'm just one little person, then on a global level, it doesn't make a difference. But on the level of this little plot of land, it doesn't matter what other people do. It still makes a difference. Not that I can... Necessarily avoid getting engaged in larger political issues Like there might be then a factory that opens up down downwind um, Or upwind and they're making pollution that's going to destroy my little garden and then I become engaged in a larger issue so And it could be that that climate change is going to destroy my little garden too and that might also lead me into a larger issue So yeah, the global and the local are, are interconnected but fundamentally we don't need the global to motivate the local. That's, that's really what I'm saying.
1: The music in this episode comes from the duo Hang Massive. Check them out at hangmusic.com. This show is sponsored by the film platform Campfire Stories, with films that are disconnected from the mainstream, but in tune with its zeitgeist. campfire-stories.org.